Welcome, everyone, to the Ex Umbers podcast. Uh, Scarlett McClawney, and with me is Schoolman Fawcett. Schoolman Fawcett, uh, often referred to as Brett, but uh, on this particular show, we're going to have to qualify that. But before we get into it, this is a, a classical Catholic education in podcast form. We are teachers at the Chesterton Academy of St. Isidore Learning Center, world's only online Chesterton Academy. Uh, this podcast is a bit of a, a taste of what a class with us might be like. And uh, Today we have a guest lecturer, a very special guest, uh, who, um, well, uh, I'll, I'll just let him introduce himself, really. Uh, his name is also Brett. We don't usually continue calling ourselves by our opening titles. We, we get lapsed into Jared and Brett, I think, in the fourth sure. of yeah, But yeah. Th today we have another Brett. So we're going to be referring to him as Dr. Brett. I met as 100% because of his gigantic ego that we have to pad as an <laughs> To, to encourage him to stay on the show. Uh, it's definitely not just because we need to conveniently distinguish him from myself. Uh, but we have Dr. Brett Sockled on here. And um, frankly, I, I, um, too many accomplishments to really summarize. The most important, of course, being that he's a member of the popular cover band, said Contra. But is there what else do you do in your spare time when you're not performing <laughs> it? Okay. Oh, my gosh. Um... Yes, uh, pad my own ego. Here we go. Uh, well, I, I'm a father of uh, seven children. That's probably my most lasting accomplishment. Um, yeah, I play in a cover band. I'm theologian for the Archdiocese of Regina. Uh, I'm a writer and a speaker and a podcaster. Uh, uh, Brett, you've been on my show I don't even know how many times, five or six, maybe, or something like that. Yeah, really, it was just a long-term investment to get you on ours, really. That's right. how it works, yeah. Um, <laughs> dividends. Exactly, yes, you know. But that's called, uh, uh, what's the title of that podcast for everyone to go check out? Thinking Faith. Thinking Faith, with uh, Deacon Eric there as well. as. Dr. That's right, so, yeah. And I'm the theologian uh, for the Archdiocese of Regina. Uh, that's my day job. And uh, I do diaconate formation here, Uh among many other things, but that's like the top of my list, my to-do list for the diocese is the is the deacon program. Um, yeah, and I I keep busy with all kinds of this kind of stuff. Uh, you oh, know, sir. I my own podcast, other people's podcasts. Well, uh, I have a column. You're you're a writer, yes, you're a writer. That's what we want to build to. Recently, wrote a book uh, that I was happy to kind of help with in a really you know tiny way. A great book on Catholic faith permeation, integration, and in Catholic schools. Uh, those of you who are watching us, Educating for Eternity, yeah. Teacher's Companion for Making Every Class Catholic, um, which we could maybe talk about one day. But prior to that, he wrote, I think you were best known, maybe, arguably, for your book on transubstantiation, uh, yeah. which is like kind of the topic we're going to be um, circling around today, I think. You yeah, know? I, so. mean, I mean, our listeners, some of them certainly are students who will have heard of transubstantiation, but what exactly is going on when we use that term? What do we mean by substance, uh, the background, so forth? Right. That's and, the word that jumps out of that. Transubstantiation is substance, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, and the, the topic that I wanted to talk about, actually, I want to hone in on substance specifically, because hearing Dr. Brett expound this in various podcasts, talking about the book, um, and teaching Descartes. Uh, teaching Descartes here at Chesterton Academy made me realize this might sound really arcane, like, oh, what's the definition of substance? Uh, but Dr. Brett, I think we'd agree. Actually, it's really helpful and necessary even to kind of have a handle on what, what we mean when we talk about substance. Uh, would you, could you flesh that out? No pun intended. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. So um, let me flesh it out in terms of why the church found it helpful in discussing its uh, Eucharistic doctrine at the time it did, because transubstantiation is not a biblical term, like the term the Trinity, 
It comes from later reflection, questions that are put to the church in history and then need to be resolved with language that makes sense to the people at the time. Uh, and so um, the church, uh, for a long time, this is a fascinating thing, the church does not really have Eucharistic controversies for like eight to 900 years. Uh, Jesus's claims that he is present with us were taken more or less at face value. You know, the early church, they weren't shy about fighting about doctrine, but they mostly fought about Christology, that there were no real debates about the Eucharist. And then uh, the philosophical landscape shifted uh, and a question started to be put. Uh, the first iteration of it is from the emperor, Charles the Bald, asks a couple of monks at a at a abbey in France, whether Christ is present truly or figuratively in the Eucharist. Um, and one of them says truly, and the other says figuratively. Uh -huh. uh, but if you look at what they said, both of them are actually trying to be faithful to the teaching of the church. You know, we might think now, looking back, well, one of them's a heretic. You know, the truly is the right answer and figuratively is the wrong answer. Um, but in the time before that, you know, Augustine is kind of the lead voice here, at least in the West. Um, Christ's presence is strongly affirmed, um, but it's understood in sacramental terms, which means that figures or signs are actually essential for understanding what's going on. And so you could see how someone who's trying to be faithful to the church would say figuratively. I, I just, um, this is kind of a footnote that if you're thinking in a platonic landscape, right? Saying something is a sign doesn't mean, oh, it's just some arbitrary thing that represents some completely unrelated thing, right? For In a platonic participatory worldview, being a right. sign, like you're directly participating in the thing that you're representing, right? Right. Um, and that's a big reason why there's no debate for a long time is because in the Mediterranean world, uh, for the first sort of 800 years of Christianity, people are sort of functionally Platonists. And so if you ask a Platonist, is this... A, a sign or is it real? They just say, yes, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's not a problem for them, but it becomes a problem later. And this, so this starts sort of boiling. Is it, is it true? Is it figurative? Um, and, and people sort of end up doubling down on both sides. You get the, the articulators of the true presence with some sort of cannibalistic almost language. Um, but then you get articulators of the other side, um, who who end up with articulations that sound like what's happening in the Eucharist is just sort of what happens in your head and mine. So the the best analogy I can I can think of for this is something like a national flag, right? So we all agree that the maple leaf uh, on a, on a white background with red bars on the sides represents Canada, and then we act accordingly. So it actually like it's not nothing, right? It disturbs us if someone burns it or tramples it or flies it upside down or or whatever, right? But we also know that like we gave it that meaning and apart from our agreement on what's happening here, it, it it's not inherent in the thing itself. It has meaning because the community has agreed on its meaning. And so that's what the 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 sort of um, figurative camp starts sounding like. Well, that's not enough uh, in, in the church's tradition. But the other side, the cannibalism side, everyone looks at that and says, well, that can't be right either. And so the church needs a new way of talking about how Christ's presence in the Eucharist is real uh, that takes account of the sacramental character of the Eucharist. And 
what ends up emerging from this is the doctrine of transubstantiation. And it comes about because substance, around this time, uh, Western Europeans are rediscovering Aristotle uh, in large part due to the Crusades. Aristotle was preserved in parts of the Middle East and Crusaders were able to bring back texts and they were translated into Latin. And so people like Thomas Aquinas are starting to work with Aristotelian categories. And in Aristotle's metaphysics, he has these categories of substance and accidents. And uh, it, accidents are what are present to our senses. So things we perceive by our senses. That's pretty important if you're talking about signs, right? Because signs are always perceived by sight or touch or you know, some sense or other. Um, but those signs aren't the full reality. In fact, they, they sort of present to us a deeper reality. And that deeper reality is, is called substance. And, and the reason the signs aren't enough, it, it's actually, it's, it sounds arcane, but it's actually really common sense. Like we all know that if you get a haircut, you don't lose your identity. Like we know that physical changes now, there are different kinds of physical changes, but in and of themselves, physical changes aren't enough to, to change an identity. So you need some underlying principle of identity that can that can let you say, like, Brett is still Brett if I shave his head. Um, I mean, that's a really rough and ready sort of thing. But so then for Thomas Aquinas, following Aristotle, substance is that which is present to the intellect. So our senses perceive physical things. And then our intellect perceives through our sense uh, sense organs uh, something that the intellect can affirm as a, a, an independently existing thing that we can like confidently say this is Brett or this is sugar or that's a horse or or that's a river valley or whatever it is. Our intellect can affirm something. Um, through the senses, but not in a way that's limited to the senses, because it, our intellect understands that changes in the sense data are not tantamount to changes in the substance of a thing. They, they can be in some cases, right? If I, if I if I burn a tree, it's it's that's different than cutting off a branch of a tree. I can cut a branch off a tree and it's still a tree, but if I burn a tree, uh, it becomes ashes and smoke and you know, whatever else. So become, it, it can become a different thing. And that, that's accounted for in the theory too. But that's a kind of rough and ready introduction. Mm -hmm. The really key distinction though is that which is present to the senses versus that which is present to the intellect. That was the really key. And I think for most people, a straightforward way of understanding why those two categories were seen as valuable. And then, oh, oh, and then let me finish with this. So then in the Eucharist, of course, you have something where you have a sign that is apprehensible by the senses. And you also have a, a claim in the history of the church that something is changing. And if you just look at it, it's, it's not the sign that's changing. So substance comes in real handy because you have something that's not a sign that's intrinsically related to it that is that could be changed. And so substance language starts being used and within about a generation of substance language being used uh there's a new term coined uh and the term is transubstantiation which becomes in relatively short order um the dominant way of speaking about it in the church and then at the council of trent is sort of defined it's a really interesting definition um it's defined according to catholic teaching official catholic teaching Transubstantiation is the most apt 
aptissime, the most apt way of speaking about the mystery. So it doesn't say it's the only way. It doesn't say it just is the thing. It, it recognizes that there's a kind of gap between our ability to articulate and the thing itself, but also that we're going to attempt the, the, those kinds mm -hmm. of articulations. And it says like, this is the best we've got. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even say that theoretically it's the best we could ever have. Uh, though, though you might want to read it that way, but that's not actually what it says. It just says it's the best we got. Yeah. Um, okay. And I now just ask some basic questions here to maybe to clarify. Maybe some of our listeners might be wondering the same thing. So, we, sure. Until the ninth century or so, uh, or is the eighth century, we have the not much of a debate, but then there's the figurative versus the truly camp uh, figurative. It in, in some cases it's almost the observer is it needs to be active in order to ascent give currency if you like uh to to uh what's happening in the eucharist or like the analogy of the flag and so on um but then once we introduce these aristotelian categories we can now distinguish between accident which is something perceptible uh, by the senses or to the senses with substance and substance is something that uh is uh, engaged with by the intellect right is, is that right yeah perfect so, now the intellect, uh, though, uh, is this um, yeah, going back to I guess maybe Platonic ideas? But uh, is the intellect participating uh, somehow in the substance in that he can perceive it now? Um, so what's the connection then between the substance and the intellect? In that, um, like, do I am I still giving currency to the substance by engaging with it? Or is it the other way around? I'm getting the currency from the substance into my intellect. Uh, so it's not that we together are thinking with our intellect, so it becomes a substance. Mm -hmm. But rather, it's the other, the, the stream is the other reversed. It's from the substance that's being perceived by our intellect. And now we can perceive what the substance is. And so yeah, it, I would... it's not like the figurative camp still is uh, going on, even though we've changed the terminology. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. So I would say it's the second option. So key for the church's um, consideration of Eucharistic presence is that it's a gift. Like we can't make it, we can only receive it. And that sort of maps onto the, um, what's the word I want? Um, like the, the theory of knowing, it maps onto the epistemological question, right? Mm -hmm. About it, like, we don't create reality by knowing it we apprehend reality and we can accept it. Now we might make mistakes, right? Uh, we know about, um, you know, optical illusions or, or any number of other reasons why we might make mistakes in our apprehension of reality, but reality precedes us. And then we perceive it rightly or wrongly and then apprehend it in, with our intellects rightly or wrongly, but we don't determine it. And, and that's really important for, for the doctrine of real presence is that it's God is the determinant, not us. God makes these to be what they are, and we receive them as a gift. And so there's this there's an interesting sort of theological angle, which is um, Protestants would want uh, God to be the main actor, right. but reducing uh, the Eucharist to a symbol actually makes the human community the main actor. Right. So there's a weird irony. Now, not all Protestants reject real presence. We should be careful to to notice sure. that that uh, you know Luther. In fact, that's the Protestant Reformation. The first split in their own ranks was yeah. on this question between realists in the Lutheran camp and symbolists in the Swiss camp. Um, 
But it's it's ironic, at least for those Protestants who reject a, a sense of real presence and and take an only symbolic approach, they end up um, having humans as the main actors in the liturgical action, which feels off hmm. for Protestantism, right? Because right. Protestantism wants the primacy of God's action, and we can agree with them about that. Um, but it, so you end up with this kind of irony there. Right, because on a, on that level, we're, we're giving currency to the... Yeah, we've, the, we've the chosen universe. a symbol yeah. to endow this meaning right. yeah. that it stands right. for. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, I want I kind of want to step back to kind of where the whole idea of substance comes from in the first yeah. place. Because I, um, I want to get to the point where we really explain, here's why this is such a useful concept for talking yeah. and thinking about the Eucharist, where we can affirm what Christ said is 100% true, but also your senses aren't lying to you when you look at the bread. Uh, yeah. People fall into all kinds of weird mistakes from having too materialist an idea of substance. All right. But before we get there, I, um, I kind of want to get all the way back to the ancient Greece and kind of right. see where, where Aristotle comes up with this, what problem he's trying to solve, uh, because it, it goes beyond the Eucharist. It goes actually to what Dr. Brett's saying about epistemology in general, right? Right. So an early philosophical problem that a lot of people probably know about, well, a couple of them that I can think of would be there's the ship of Theseus. Oh, the yeah. good old ship of Theseus, where yeah. uh, the ship is progressively, uh, he keeps taking parts off the ship, puts them in the river, and they float downhill, and then yeah. he, he replaces them with new parts until eventually uh, his ship is built entirely of new material. And then, uh, what's his face? Bob downstream keeps picking right. them up, and he he yeah. builds his own ship until eventually right. he's got a ship that's built entirely out of the same stuff Theseus used, oh, which right. is the original ship of Theseus. Oh, okay. Right. If you're a strict materialist, it seems like Bob has the ship of Theseus. Right. It's materially exactly the same. Yeah. As the, whereas Theseus's ship is materially completely different than it was recently. But right. that seems like it can't be true. So right. Just, and of course, the, the relevance, it, not that they necessarily knew this in ancient Greece, although I'm sure they intuited it, that, you know, we recycle all ourselves every seven years, apparently. Right. right? Yeah. So or am I a different person than I was eight years ago? Right. There must be something else going on there. Um, and the other famous example, of course, is uh, I'll let Dr. Brett talk about this, and he can explain why why substance solves this problem, he is uh, Heraclitus uh, and his uh, uh, his problem about jumping in a river. Um, oh, yeah. Dr. Brett, you want to speak to that and how, how Aristotle's idea of substance solves these problems? Is, yeah, sure. Is yeah, I'll, or, I'll jump into yeah. that. But let me let me push the um, the uh, ship of Theseus analogy with our bodies uh, one step oh, oh, further. Oh, no. Sure. So imagine imagine that you know, okay, um, I've got I've got you know some tomato plants in my house, right? Yeah. Now apparently, most dust, household dust, is actually skin cells. Oh. Right. So, so my tomato plant in the soil of my tomato plants is the skin cells from the various members of my family and the visitors that we've, no. we've had to our house, right? So those are taken in and metabolized by the plant and some portion of that ends up in the tomatoes, which we then put in a salad and then eat. So now we all have some material components of one another. Oh. And now, do we get confused at that point and say, I'm no longer Brett. I'm actually now like some tiny percentage of me is like, daisy and like it gets really weird right it's just it's yeah. not intuitive right. but it 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 follows if that's how you think of identity right um so anyway i just wanted to follow up with that but yeah the, the river right so this is this is made famous i when i do talks on this i i reference the disney movie pocahontas okay. because uh in the in the sort of lead um musical number the colors of the wind uh pocahontas says the wonderful thing about rivers is you can't step in the same river twice 
And and so I ask, uh, you know, the audience at one of my talks if that's right or not. And and it's interesting to see the reactions because they know what is meant here, right? If you can't step in the same river twice, they know that the, the water that you you stepped in yesterday is far downstream and the riverbed has shifted subtly and the vegetation and the animal life have grown a little or died or, you know, it's it's in a constant state of flux. That's the point. And we want to recognize that that's, that's true about reality. Um, but then uh, you also say like, okay, so I went down to the Capel River uh, yesterday and I stepped in it. And then I went down to the Capel River today and I stepped in it again. Um, like, what did I step in? If it wasn't the Capel River, like, what was it? And mm -hmm. then I say, like, a geologist might tell you, you know, the Capel River is the largest glacial spillway in the world. And so that means that we can actually trace its origins back to the last ice age, which we're talking, you know, tens of thousands of years. Um, and that it would have looked radically different, you know, when that when that retreating um, glacier stopped in the prairies and, and shed a bunch of its water and washed out this part of the the world and and formed a river valley um but is it is so is it coherent or not to call the capel river the the largest glacial spillway in the world uh because if i if it's not even the same river today as it was yesterday mm -hmm. it's certainly not a tens of thousands year old glacial spillway and since we all know that that it it, it actually is coherent to speak in this way then there must be some way of accounting for its identity over time despite changes and and that's what substance allows us to do right it says despite these changes all the river that's you know that's run over tens of thousands of years all those water molecules that have gone downstream and gone to the ocean or evaporated or or whatever else happened to them right um that that's not the determining factor there's something else that your intellect can apprehend underneath those accidental changes um mm. and and if you don't have that you end up with just a ton of problems like you can't you can't identify yourself from one day to the next you can't identify a river from you know and then you're you're forced into thinking like all of this stuff all of the common sense way of speaking and identifying things is just a sort of helpful illusion mm. which is a sort of deeply unsatisfying approach to reality right yeah. So uh, when we can make this distinction then between accident and substance, accident would be just literally on the surface of things, what our senses report. But if we can understand the concept of substance, we're going beyond that, uh, as opposed to uh, being deflected back, where that's just be an illusion, right? If we're going to call the Capel River or Dr. Brett or Brett or whatnot, mm -hmm. that's just an illusion that we're imposing on the thing. Uh, if, if we're just all we can work with are accidents. Right, right, yeah. Whereas if we have a substance, then we can go beyond the surface of what's there and uh, to somewhere else, as opposed to being refracted back. This might be where it's a good, a good opportunity to define substance, right? Oh, yeah. To kind of be clear what we mean by this. Because, okay. yeah, what we're saying is if you look at a river or a human being or any material thing on just a material level, you'll find all the material elements are always changing. I mean, like... You know, Heraclitus is in some sense right. I mean, quantum physics, right? Everything is just energy, right? That's always constantly in flux and changing, right? But that would mean that nothing really exists because everything is always changing. Uh, so there must be something that stands, you know, in the case of a river, there's all the water that's constantly flowing, everything you mentioned. There must be something other than what we can observe 
that stands underneath all of those and somehow holds oh, it together. Yeah. Hence, you know, substantial under it stands underneath okay. and kind of holds these uh, accidents together. Uh, and and that's that's called a substance. Like that's the term we've kind of come up for it, or like by way of the Latin. So how how specifically do we define a substance in contradiction to an accident? Right. So a, a substance is an independently existing thing. So like a ball can be red, but red doesn't exist independently of a ball. Red is an accident, and it always inheres in a substance. Right. Um, you you just can't point to a red. Like, hey, look at that red. No, it's a red, like, look at that red stop sign. Look at that red ball. Look at that red, you know, something. I, I mean, really, it's the difference between nouns and adjectives. Yeah. Like, like right? Uh, it, it, we just know intuitively, you don't say, hey, look at that big. Mm -hmm. Or look at that red. Or look at that, you know, any any adjective you can you can pick. They need something to, in, in, the, in the technical language, inhere in. So a red, you know, red inheres in a red ball or in a red stop sign, but there's something. Um, but see, you could say you could describe the ball uh, from from the point of view of accidents quite deeply, right? You could you talk about its shape and its density and its color and its size and all all kinds of stuff. And because you can you can describe so many different kinds of accidents, you can almost trick yourself into thinking well they all sort of inhere in each other right so mm. um so the the most basic accident is is the fact that something takes up space at all right uh, sometimes this is called the dimensive property right that it has dimensions uh and so you might just think well that's that's given that's the real underlying thing and then color or anything else sort of inheres in that and and in fact, it's that it's that um, uh, move that ends up changing substance from being the thing which underlies any of the accidents to sort of crossing the aisle to becoming one of the accidents. Oh, and so, one of our problems with substance and for Catholics for understanding their own church's teaching on the Eucharist is that substance no longer means for us in common parlance what it meant for Thomas Aquinas and for the church when they defined transubstantiation. For, uh, for Aquinas and the tradition, it was that which is which is uh, present to the intellect and under undergirds all the accidental properties. Um, but sometime between Thomas and the Reformation, it starts to become one more accident. Uh, and I don't follow, I don't know all this detail up through Descartes. I only follow it up to about John Calvin. Um, but but by the time of Luther and Calvin, it makes transubstantiation incoherent, and all the reformers reject it. And what they reject is what is something Thomas Aquinas himself rejects, which is a sort of clandestine change of the accidents. And Thomas is like, well, no, that that's not it. Uh, and, but what do you mean by a clandestine change of the accidents? Well, clandestine in the sense that we can't discern it, right? But but it must be something like cause... let's 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 hone in on this because I think this is the way a lot of Catholics think nowadays, right? So when a lot of people hear the idea that the body the the the, the bread is changed into the body of Christ but retains the accidents of bread, I think what a lot of people are sort of visualizing is you can't see it happening, but actually this little round wafer has now turned into a guy with hair and legs, you know what I mean, and teeth and blood and blood and sinews. Um, but and God is kind of veiling that under the. Our senses are deceived. 
And and so you'll see, I mean, I remember, I'm sure Dr. Brett remembers this too, with someone on on the website formerly known as Twitter made a comment about how when we eat the Eucharist, we're not swallowing a kneecap. And he got right. a bunch of zealous responses from well-meaning Catholics who said, yeah, that's a heresy because it's when the real presence means that this is turned into the body of Christ. Therefore, of course, we are swallowing a kneecap when we eat. Oh, and that shows right. that we are thinking of substance as being identical to its accidents, which in a minute I'll, I'll get to this, that's Descartes' fault. But that's actually not the traditional, it's not the philosophical or the theological definition of substance. Right. Because you're conflating it with a physical, and physical is another term that we can get to, but you're conflating the substance with these various accidents. Right. Um, so there's is that what we mean by the clandestine yeah that, yes that we're, okay. that yeah so the language used in the middle ages by some people right is that there um there are veils drawn over it because god doesn't want us too grossed out by eating a guy's body so god kind of disguises it so we can't see okay. what we're doing so the right. so, so the accidents have changed we just are they're imperceptible exactly that would us. Be, that's how some people oh okay. and that both aquinas uh, i think this is what you're saying Dr. Brett, both the reformers and aquinas want to reject that right it, it, the accidents have actually changed. We just don't see it happening. Okay, right. That's a contradiction in terms, is it not? Oh, I guess they say there's a veil. So that's how they get it. Right. That's how right. They, yeah. Okay. So this, so there's a couple case studies here that are interesting. Uh, one is uh, Aquinas himself uh, says there can be no deception in the sacrament. So he rejects this veil argument explicitly uh, because he says no, the, the the accidents of bread and wine, which remain, actually need to remain not as a covering. To, to veil the reality, but as a sign that points to the reality. That's how sacraments work. Jesus chose bread and wine, not as a disguise for his presence, but as a sign of his presence. And so Catholics who want to downplay the, the physical reality of the, of the bread and wine are actually missing how sacraments work. Mm. Physical reality of the bread and wine are the signs that our senses perceive that lead us to Christ. So that's that's one thing. But here's, here's another um, sort of thought experiment. Uh, the some atheist, you know, kidnaps a host, consecrated host from a Catholic mass and takes it into the lab and runs the tests and comes out on social media and says, I've run the tests. I've disproved uh, Catholic, uh, you know, uh, faith and real presence because I just ran the tests in the lab and found out that this consecrated host is no different from an unconsecrated host. And now if you put that in front of Catholics, a lot of them feel like they're in a really awkward position and they'll say like, well, Jesus could have unconsecrated himself to prevent a kind of desecration. Maybe there's a kind of veil. But Thomas Aquinas' answer would be, I told you so, you moron. Like, uh -huh. like that's exact. If you read my book, you'll see that's exactly what I tell you to expect. Uh -huh. Right? So Catholics are thrown into this crisis when someone proves, in, in scare quotes, proves that there's no physical change. But he's like, no, that's the doctrine. That's how it works, you know? Yeah. And, and this is... um. This goes back to the whole point of, you'll sometimes hear this from uh, other Christians. I hear this from Eastern Orthodox sometimes. Well, with transubstantiation, that's over-explaining the mystery, right? Like you're, you're giving this like rigid oh, scholastic right. account of yeah. this thing that's the action of God and it's mysterious. And that's not the point of it, right? Like The point is, how can we talk in a, co like in a way that doesn't fall into heresy, right? In a way that's true um, about the fact that this looks like bread, but is Jesus. And right. his brilliance is that he says, well, actually, there's in a sense a common sense answer to this, which is everything you've ever interacted with has an immaterial reality that you actually only know by your intellect, not by your senses. And then there's the sensory stuff. And, and you and you already know those are different things. This is just right. another example of that.
If you can tell the difference between a noun and an adjective, exactly. you already yes. know this. Actually, my friend uh, Deacon Fritz Bauerschmidt says when he teaches this uh, to his undergrads, he says you don't actually need Aristotle to under transubstantiation, understand transubstantiation. You need the object permanence you'd expect of the average two-year-old. Yes. Right. Oh, I saw my son as well. He's on top of object permanence and he is not two years old yet. Um, okay. well, which, which shows that he's smarter than some philosophers. I, I, my, my, the, the, 